0: They say they love you and then it turns out terribly.
1: Welcome, no script listeners, to season three of NoScript, the podcast, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm doing a very deep voice, so you can't tell which of us it is, but I'm sure you know. It's Jacob Mann Christensen. Hey, and this is Jackson Nikolai. Welcome to
0: season three. How exciting to be here. Yeah, absolutely. We've got... Another whole season lined up. Holy cow. We got like another like 15, 20 plays ready to go here. (laughs) Yeah, we're we're running at 22 play
1: seasons. So we have got 22 plays that we are looking down the road at to talk with each other about, to talk with you about. It is a very exciting thing
0: to be on the threshold of a new season. Yes, indeed. All sorts of exciting things. How about that new music we just heard? Whoa, Uh, (laughs) whoa, things are changing. Things are changing. But don't worry, there's things that you can expect to stay around, like themed month is going to happen this season again. Um, That's right. This season, we are doing another
1: themed month. We are not announcing the theme yet, but we will. That month is going to be in October, so you can look forward to a themed month in October.
0: Yes, Uh, you can also look forward to a special guest, as we've had each season so far, so uh, you can keep your eyes out for that. And we're, we're kicking things off with another expectation and tradition, aren't we?
1: That's right. And as much as we have traditions over three seasons, this <laughs> is one of them. <laughs> Traditionally, shine. we begin our season with a play by the powerhouse, the amazing, the just absolutely inspiring, incredible writer, Ms. Lynn
0: Nottage. Yes, indeed. That's 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 three seasons starting with Lynn Nottage plays I uh uh, uh Jacob recommended to me to go back and listen back to the other two before we did this and I did it's been really it's gonna be really fun to kind of uh ping off of those last two times we've talked about uh Lynn Nottage plays and go into this third one
1: yeah, I was, I was listening to the same two episodes over again just to kind of refresh ourselves on what we've talked about with Lynn Nottage, the kinds of themes we've seen in her other plays, and I was just reminded how great those other two plays are. Yeah. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> what amazing experiences it is to experience those plays and then to come to the feet of my favorite Lynn Nottage play, easily the most well-known Nottage play, at least before Sweat came out. That might have surpassed it given how uh, uh, well-lauded Sweat that was, but today we are talking about the famous Intimate
0: Apparel. Yeah, which you mentioned twice in our first episode ever, I believe, as I listened to it back. So we've been teasing this one for a while, everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: That's right. We, we have a, uh, a professional tip from two podcasters about this play and Google. Uh, and our tip is uh, when you are going to google it make sure you either put Lynn Nottage's name in the Google search or just the word play
0: yeah otherwise drama.
1: Googling intimate <laughs> apparel will not yeah. return search results for this play
0: right yeah yeah so <laughs> Google or Amazon or any of those definitely uh, throw the
1: <laughs> we've been uh, we've been tricked a number of times preparing for this episode.
0: Yep. <laughs> Well, well, before we dive into uh, uh, the the uh, awesome script that Intimate Apparel is, uh, I did want to just take a second and thank everyone who has already uh, traveled their way over to patreon.com slash Podcast. We have a Patreon account over that away because, uh, I mean, we're, we're three seasons into this. We love doing this. We love getting to talk about plays and to get to talk about them with all of you out there in podcast land. But uh, the show is not free to make. We do have uh, some fees that we generate for the hosting, we have to buy the plays, we have to dedicate dedic- dedicate quite a bit of time to the uh, editing and the recording and all that process. So if you have been along for the ride this far and have loved getting to listen to us and, have, and, 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 you know, interacted with us about these plays and you're looking for a way to help the podcast out, Patreon.com is a really great way to do that. We have a number of tiers that are super accessible for as low as $1 a month. You can uh, subscribe, uh, and become a patron over there, you'll get access to patron-only posts, and uh, you will, uh, at other tiers, you can get, like, producer credit. We'll say your name as a part of the, uh, the podcast. So, if you have a minute, if you want to support the podcast and be sure we keep getting to do these awesome plays and have these unscripted conversations, head on over to patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast.
1: Thank you for all of your support. It's been an amazing two seasons and it's going to be an amazing season three. Let's get rolling as we do as is our tradition and something you can continue to look forward to the beginnings of our conversations about plays will start with a brief context kind of the play's production history especially any awards any special historical or sociological uh, context that it has in our world and then we'll give you a brief synopsis of the plot before we start talking more dramatic literature so Intimate Apparel was produced for the first time in 2003 at the Center Stage in Baltimore. It then went to play Off-Broadway at the Roundabout Theater, a very famous, very awesome theater in New York. And that was a production which had, playing Esther, playing the lead role, the absolutely incredible Viola Davis...
0: Yeah. Mm.-Hmm. Yeah, I was kind of surprised when I saw that. I was looking through the original production. I was like, okay, I don't recognize too many names, and then hers is the top of the list on the original Broadway yeah, production. Yeah, like, uh, what Whoa. a
1: huge name. And and you know, this was 2004, so this would have been what 15 years ago. So I don't I don't quite remember uh, what level of fame Viola Davis had 15 years ago. But nowadays, looking back at that, you want to go, oh man, I wish <laughs> I'd seen that production. <laughs> and additionally, not only was Viola Davis playing Esther but Corey Stoll was playing Mr. Marks Uh, to see those two actors do anything I would pay a lot of money (laughs) let alone a script that I love so so much Um, the, the play went on to be produced of course across the country it's very very famous people across the country have loved it it's gotten positive reviews everywhere of course people like the Steppenwolf Theater the Artist Repertory Theater have done it but lots of regional professional theaters have too I mentioned in episode one, season one, when we were talking about sweat, that I had gotten to see In A Apparel at our local professional theater here in Arkansas, Theater Squared. And it was just a lovely tender remarkable little production of this play i was so so thrilled that i got to see it at theater squared and and i'm so thrilled that we now get to talk about it and now it would be a a little while after i've actually seen it so I'm, i'm excited to refresh my memories about what i saw during that production uh in terms of awards a lot of the awards that the script received were really for productions of the play and not so much for the script jackson and i were talking we were sort of shocked or at least i was that the uh the the play was not even nominated for a pulitzer i, I i'm hurt by that i think um <laughs> but lots of awards for productions of it uh viola davis was uh for the drama desk award for outstanding actress in a play she won the performance ob award for her role in this play lots of um nominations for set design and costume design and uh and on and on and on those kinds of awards for the play really really uh cool history and, and one that I'd really love to do and add my own production to the context of the play going forward
0: yeah yeah so uh, I'll jump in and synopsize real quick as we uh, as we jump in again, uh, as, as we have said before, uh, we, we we will assume that you have read this play. the way that we bounce around assumes a, a high context of the play, but we do like to synopsize real quick just to let you know some bones of the script. Um, this play takes place in 1905 in lower Manhattan. So uh, bear that in mind as we go through this. There's a number of uh, references to uh, timeline things. Just a couple. Like they mentioned, they refer to the war. And uh, in, in a lot of the plays we've done, the war has meant one of the world wars. I believe this one refers to the American Civil War. So uh, that is the, uh, the timeline that we're in, post-American Civil War in Lower Manhattan, New York. So um,
1: I just want to pause you. I'm sorry to interrupt your synopsis, Jackson, but I, let's just take a moment to reflect. We have done three Lynn Nottage plays. Yeah. Look at how outstandingly different and specific (laughs) all of these plays are, right? (laughs) Sweat was set in 2000 and then 2008 amidst the financial crisis and the closing of all these factories. Ruined was set in the post-Civil War in the Congo and through all of the rebellions and the, the terrible violence that was happening in the Congo. This is set in 1905 in Lower Manhattan just after American Civil War. I mean, how crazy <laughs> is that? These plays are nothing like each other in Ab- terms yeah. of their setting and context and the society that exists around the characters.
0: Yeah, and they're like deep dive introductions into these areas that you don't necessarily interact with on an everyday basis. Right, like, you, y- I mean,
1: you could teach these plays as part of a history class.
0: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. You could. You could get a really good context for whatever... Place Lynn Nottage decides to set her plays. It's <laughs> yeah. yep. So so the the, the broad sweeping storyline of this play is uh, we we got a, a pretty small cast, uh, only six uh, actors. There's uh, Esther, who uh, I believe will be following most of the time throughout the play. Uh, she has the the through line story and is arguably the protagonist. Um, we have uh, Mrs. Dixon, who is her landlady. And uh, and they start the play. Theirs is the first scene. Uh, Esther is living in Mrs. Dixon's uh, apartment complex, and uh, and uh, yeah, so so she is living and she is working as a seamstress, a very specific kind of seamstress, in that she makes uh, intimate apparel for people. She makes lingerie for uh, people around town, and uh, especially wealthy uh, white women. Yes, that seems yep. to be
1: her kind of. Her, her her uh her market.
0: Yeah, she kinda goes uptown and uh and uh and works works with them. Thus uh we, we meet one of those clients throughout the play, uh who is Mrs. Van Buren, uh who is in her uh yeah, in her I have fifties, yes, in her fifties, uh and is a little bit no, I think I have that wrong. She is in her thirties. Mrs. Dixon is in her fifties. Um and uh, she's, she's uh, kind of uh, always getting ready for some sort of event when she's over. She's getting fitted for these pieces of intimate apparel. And uh, as a result of that, we uh, meet another person as well. Esther, uh, Esther's supplier for her fabric, her, the fine fabrics of this intimate apparel, is Mr. Marks, who is uh, a fabric salesman. He is uh, Romanian Jewish um uh by by uh, heritage and religion and uh, yeah, Romanian Orthodox Jewish. And then uh, we meet Mamie who is a friend of hers. Uh, she works as a, a prostitute in one of the, Buildings around town, and she meets with her occasionally. And then we're also introduced to another character, most of the, a good chunk of the play, the first act at least, mostly just through letters. And his name is George. And the kind of through line of this play, we start the play on someone else's wedding night in the apartment complex. And we get the sense that there's. Uh, kind of a high rate of people in the apartment getting married. Um, yeah,
1: or it might also be like just a shower or an engagement celebration. Mm-hmm. There never, there's some sort of party surrounding the this young woman, I think Corinna is her name if I recall, yeah. that is going to be married or just got married, something like that. There's some talk about her leaving with her fiance, so maybe they're not married. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. but we meet Esther sewing uh undergarments for Corinna's wedding night.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. And and some of the first scene is kind of around this uh this theme that uh Esther is getting a little older to try to get married. She is uh this to is 1905. Remember, yeah. We're remember not of course, making five. any
1: judgments.
0: Yeah, yeah. In 1905, this is this is the the, the struggle that she's in is that she, she's trying to she she has <laughs> noticed the fact that she is getting a little bit older to try to get married, um, and uh, then then she starts receiving letters from someone named George who is down in Panama um, who uh, knew a friend of hers. Uh, from church, I believe, and uh started he recommended this friend from church recommended that he write her as like something to do to, you know, <laughs> uh mitigate the awfulness that is digging the Panama Canal. Uh,
1: yeah,
0: that's what he claims. <laughs> and that's what he claims. That's what that's what we <laughs> that's what we hear. And uh thus through the first act of the play, we have this interaction between them building through letters. Um, the complicating action in the first act is that Esther can't read, uh, read or write. So she goes to her, her friends, her very, or her acquaintances, uh, we'll, we'll say for now, uh, Mrs. Van Buren and Mamie, to help her write these letters back to George. I think that's where I'm going to stop the synopsis portion of this, because the second act I'm sure we'll get into. Um, at the end of the first act, George ends up coming to town, and uh, they meet. So where do these? How how do you feel about uh, this 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 introduction coming through to this character and their relationship coming through these letters, um, kind of subjectively throughout the the start of the play?
1: Well, right, and I, I think a crucial thing to understand about the letters too is that we. We don't hear Esther's letters, so we're not really getting a correspondence. We're getting a series of letters from George. Uh, By the time he starts writing letters, they come about at the end of almost every scene. There's some sort of letter for George, and we hear through through Esther's conversations with other characters that she's getting letters once, twice, three times a week from this guy. And they are... Incredible
0: letters. Oh yeah, the, yeah. Works of literature. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> often, sometimes verbose works of literature. Just like really descriptive, beautiful imagery of of the life and and, and the uh, the life that he's leading and yeah, uh, the
1: tear, the ha- really hard, haunting life.
0: Yeah. Yep. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. So so yeah, we get we just get the one side. We know. We know that the friends are writing the letters for her. What I wasn't clear on at first is that they're kind of governing the content, too. Um, she Well, she, <laughs> yes. I mean,
1: she. so so as you said, she has these three female friends or acquaintances, the, the landlady, the client, and then the, the true friend, longtime friend Mamie. And each of these women at a different point Uh, kind of helps her either read the letter or write a response to the letter. And you're right, they end up coloring just a little bit of content that we get. Um, When Mrs. Van Buren writes a letter for her, it begins sort of eloquently and very uh, formal, very romantic, very... high society and when Mamie writes hers it's pretty suggestive even right away and like uh, George has asked what Esther looks like and Esther is fairly concerned about answering that because she does not feel that she's very pretty at all and so uh, you know Mamie says something like well he doesn't care about your face come on Uh, and so she starts to write this letter and it's like dear George I'm sitting here wearing this lacy uh, bathrobe as I I pen this letter to you. Yep, yep. <laughs> and so we know that the Esther that Esther is introducing to George via letter is, in some or major fashion,
0: uh, a fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or, or, or at least like. Uh, uh, Especially of uh, Ann Buren kind of talks about how she's kind of living vicariously through these letters. So it's like, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fiction, and also kind of a a chance that these uh, other two friends have to idealize the the relationship <laughs> and uh, and play with it that way.
1: Right, and even if the even if the content of the letters were hundred percent Esther, even if she had dictated. Every word of the letters, which is not what happens. But even if that were the case, they would still be a fiction because she is pretending she is writing him letters and that she has read his letters. And that becomes a source of real consternation for her in act 2 as she reflects on the fact that she's been lying about her ability to read and write and it comes up george wants her to read a letter that someone has written him and she has to pretend that she can read it
0: yeah yeah the 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 uh, the kind of moment where that flips just imagine the the just kind of the anxiety of that scene you know you you can you can see it coming and he's and the 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 uh the 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 stage directions, <laughs> the stage directions say, uh, you know, he's almost like testing her in a way. He's like holding out the letter and watching her very closely to see if she's reading it. So she's like, she has to decide in that scene whether to be truthful about that she can't read or to like try to give a blase enough answer that that it'll that it'll cover uh, the, the the fact and keep the lie going longer
1: and i think that that's very interesting because the the, the sense of the play and the 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 tone of the play, especially as we reach act two, it, it tends to lean into this sense that George has really betrayed Esther. And uh, because he, we learn that his letters were not very truthful either about who right. he was and what kind of person he is. And he, we learn that he didn't even write the letters. Right. He paid somebody <laughs> to write the letters for him. And yeah. so there's this this sense of betrayal about, you know, what? how could he do this to... To poor Esther, pretend to be somebody he's not, and then only once or twice does does anybody really reflect on the fact that in a lot of ways Esther did the same thing.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The 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 you get the revelations of of that both of them uh, wrote wrote the letters via proxy um, to each other and, and, and even he, he said he, he like paid someone 10 cents per letter to write to write uh, these letters to her. You get them at relatively sim- similar times. I think it's either within the same scene or within uh, a scene of each other. you get this information. So it's like it very quickly you realize that both of them have kind of been pursuing this thing but have been lying to each other as as, as they went along. And so
1: in Act 1, before George comes and before all of that is revealed so explicitly, you live in this world – I think you end up living as one of the people around Esther. Does that make sense, Jackson? You know, sometimes you really live a play through the eyes of the protagonist. And and that's not the experience of this play, I think. I didn't feel that when I read it or when I saw it. I really felt like one of the people around Esther in that my sense of this story was the sense of foreboding was the sense that clearly this is not going to work. And oh, clearly, poor Esther, who I so sympathize with and who's such just a, a shining character, somebody you're rooting for so much, but you know this is not going to end well. And you know it because, first of all, the letters from George, like we said, are so poetic and beautiful and romantic that they just simply cannot be real. Yeah, and as one of the people around Esther as an audience, I think we all catch that in a way that
0: Esther doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think maybe maybe some of it has to do with you know my own uh, life experience and perspective. Maybe if my perspective was different uh, different, I would uh, feel feel that uh, uh, Esther is my, my my avatar in it. But I think uh, we are welcomed into being the people around her, like you said, because. Because we, we 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 we've heard this story before, right? <laughs> Someone writes letters. You never meet the person that they write letters. They say you love them, or they say they love you, and then it turns out terribly. Um, <laughs> oh,
1: right. No, you're you're exactly right, and I don't think that's a point to throw away. We've seen this story play out before, and I don't mean that in that the play is hackneyed in any way. It's not. What I mean is. As a person, as an audience member, we end up being aligned with the three women around Esther because like them, we know where this is going. Like these other characters who've had more of a a broad life than Esther, we've seen this before. And one of the things that we haven't mentioned really yet is that part of who Esther is, is this very sheltered, uh, very protected, very... Uh, innocent young young woman. She's in her thirties, and th- she has not. Li- she's not. I don't know. I'm not sure quite how to say this, Jackson. You want to help me out? She's not very experienced, not only in terms of being with a man, uh, but in life. She yeah. she seems e at the same time though. She doesn't. She doesn't seem easily tricked. So I wouldn't say she's. Um, uh, gullible.
0: Right. Yeah, no, it seems to be that she is, uh, yeah, we're, we're we're trying to dance around this a little bit, but uh, the, I'll give you what the characters say about about her. Yeah, well, that's a good, um, good thing. Yeah, uh, uh Mamie accuses or, or not accuses. She she points out that she has never slept with anyone, and kind of draws out in the in the kind of teasing way that often happens. That uh that that's a weak spot. Um, and so uh so there there's that element. Uh, Miss Di- Mrs. Dixon seems to uh, approach it from you are not experienced with relationships Relationships with men in general. Let me tell you about men. Um, and so as she is receiving these letters, Mrs. Dixon is saying, you you gotta know that he's gonna come and that he's gonna leave. Um, that this always happens. She says um, that 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 there's no way that this will end up okay in the end. And if you if you if you had more relationships with men, you'd know that this was coming down the pipe.
1: Right. And similarly, Mrs. Van Buren, Van Buren's storyline of the three women perhaps is the most um, separated. From what's going on with Esther, Mrs. Van Buren's husband and her are trying to conceive a child and they can't. And the husband's growing slowly more dissatisfied with their marriage because she's not been able to conceive. And and so we learn a lot about that. And and through those conversations, Mrs. Van Buren sort of... uh, Reaffirms this idea that Esther has no real idea how to deal with relationships. So when Esther gives advice, it's sometimes bad advice. Right. Uh, and when Mrs. Van Buren describes what's going on, she kind of has to over describe not the sex part of it necessarily, but the the relationship part. Like, why would you stay with a person who you seem unhappy with uh, at the time? And so Esther is sort of learning about relationships and people from these women around her. Mm -hmm. And so there's this sense that we as the audience go, Esther, this is never going to end well. How could you believe this is going to end well? But Esther comes from a different perspective. And so she has hope and maybe some desperation, too. Here's a a sample of what George's letters sound like. (laughs) Dearest Esther, it is dawn. No work has begun. The morning is still holding the ocean, not yet blue. But I can see past everything green to the horizon, and it is here in the half-light that I imagine you. (laughs) So, look, that guy's a con, man. Yeah. Come on. (laughs) Look, yep. my wife and I, right, right, the right before we got engaged, we spent a whole summer doing a distance relationship. I wrote her a letter. I forget exactly how she would hate me for this. I think I wrote her a letter every day, if I recall, or at least every other day or something. Um, but I never wrote anything like that,
0: <laughs> and I'm a writer. <laughs> <laughs> this is clearly con level, con artist level Look, going on. Look, anybody right can here. write
1: better than me. Clearly they're <laughs> clearly, con. Clearly, that's the only way. <laughs> no, but as an audience, we know that this just based even just based on hearing George's letters, I think we can all see that there must be betrayal in the future.
0: Yep. Yeah, the 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 other narrative that Esther is is kind of uh running up against and and having to grapple with is this narrative that she receives from other people that uh she is she is not as beautiful as other people. Um she is described as plain occasionally and she she, she believes the narrative. Um and uh it's it's uh Sadly, then uh, affirmed later on by George, who uh, tells her the same thing, essentially. Yeah,
1: tragically, tragically. What a gross thing. And he says it a couple times. Yeah. And the truth is that Esther says it too, right? It's not just the people around her. She says over and over again things like, I know what I look like. Right. Uh, You know, I know I'm not a prize. I know that no
0: man really wants me. Mm Mm-hmm. So th- I think that feeds into this letter business as well. And she so is- does
1: the desperation of as you mentioned getting older. Mm-hmm. She says she's 35. She's worried no one's going to marry her at this point.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and and it's and it's not a, a it's not a uh <laughs> our, our you know, our modern sensitivities maybe flare a little bit at that, but she has accepted the narrative of the society around her at the time, which was a prevalent one. And uh, and so it's it, I, th- I think all of that is working into this. Well,
1: maybe. Right, maybe right. There's this desperation on her part that that this this strange occurrence, a stranger writing letters to her from the Panama Canal where he's digging, working a, as part of the crew to dig. Maybe this will be the thing that rescues me from my own desperation for marriage. And some of it, I agree, is the societal expectations around her and the world that that it would be very hard for a single woman who doesn't have any provision from her husband to make her way in the world. Although maybe not necessarily hard for Esther. Several of the other characters mentioned that because Esther's so such a talented seamstress of such a specific and expensive item, she probably could make her way in the world. But there is some societal expectation, but there's also some of it just being Esther too, right? I don't want to put all of it into society because I think Esther wants to be in a relationship. She wants to be loved and cared for in a way that is if not totally separate at least on its own thing from the societal expectations around her.
0: Right, right, absolutely. And, and I and I like that you brought up the 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 kind of aspect of the 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 seamstress having having this kind of fallback because many people do bring that up and she is like she <laughs> she buys very nice uh fabric. We we learned this through her relationship with Mr. Marks and uh and she she, you know, makes these really good pieces, um, that, that astonish people. Um, so, so I think you're right that there is, there is that, that complicating factor of, of she has a trade that she can rely on and that she has been saving up things from to make her own, uh, shop. Uh, it's, it's, it's mentioned more than once that like the, the best way For for people who are in her situation to have a prolonged uh, uh, successful life is to have their own shop. And she has been slowly working towards accomplishing that for a long time.
1: Right. So we get one of the in, the props in the play that is infused with such power. There's many props in this play that have a lot of stage weight and a lot of weight in the storytelling. The first one – is it the first one? I don't know. Probably the most major one is what, what the stage – what the script refers to as the crazy quilt which is this sort of lovely homespun quilt, clearly made by Esther, beautiful, lots of colors. She lives in this sort of plain uh, uh, um, boarding room. And so the quilt's one of those things that gives it just such a beautiful color. And... Not only is it made by her in a beautiful homespun quilt, which is its own kind of power, but sewn into the quilt is her savings. And mm. she says she's saved $100 a year every year she's been a seamstress.
0: So she's got
1: easily at least $1,000 in 1905.
0: Yeah. Yep. <laughs> which is just, wow. Like, that's got to be enough to do something. You could see a something. movie for a nickel back then. <laughs> right. <laughs> You could pay pay a man to write your letters for 10 cents back then. Uh, I could could still find somebody who'd write letters (laughs) for me for 10 cents.
1: (laughs) They wouldn't be that quality anyway. Right, right. um, So she's got all this money saved. And the money is for uh, a dream of hers and Mamie's to have a beauty shop. Ah, uh, specifically catering to African American women, where they're treated as human, basically with dignity, like ladies. They say over and over again. Rather than in their society, and the racism of the time, there's no sense of, uh, you know, these women can be beautiful ladies of high respect. Uh, Esther says we basically just have to wash our face and hair in the in a bucket.
0: Right. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, so so she has been saving that up, and that, and you're right, that is a huge loaded prop in that scene, and and I think <laughs> we got to talk. About, let's talk about the other prop then to set up the next beat that I think we should talk about, which is kind of the 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 main uh, struggle of the second act. Um, but uh, on their wedding night, uh, Esther gives George this suit. Is that the other uh, problem you're talking about? Let's get there
1: really, yes, definitely. Let's get there really quick, though. So in the course of their letter writing, and much to the dismay of the women around her, Esther agrees to marry George if he'll move to New York from Panama, where he's digging the canal. So the end of Act 1 is George arrives from Panama. Of course, it's the end of Act 1, right? It's uh, the setup for the next story. And the end of the act is the two of them taking a picture on their wedding day. They don't, they don't speak at all in act one. They just, George arrives and they get married and there's a picture taken and we got to talk about the pictures, but not right now. Yep, yep, yep. And so then the next scene, the beginning of act two is their wedding night and act two then basically encompasses life now that George is here and Esther is finally married. One of mm-hmm. the main worries for her in act one, will she ever be married now is solved. Now she is married. And this is the story that unfurls.
0: Yeah. So on their wedding night, uh, uh, um, amongst the the things that happen on a wedding night, she gives him a uh, <laughs> she gives him a suit as a gift. Um, Well, it's
1: a smoking jacket, isn't it? Yes. It's a a gorgeous silk or satin smoking jacket. It's bright red. It's got Mm -hmm. all the beautiful adornment and lace work that she does that's her specialty on it. It's an incredible gift. Clearly a very expensive gift. Yeah. One that she had to go to Mr. Mark's several times for to get the right fabric. One that she – we know that it takes her a long time to do this stuff because of how complicated it is. So she makes
0: him this incredible gift. Mm hmm. And and yeah, and she gives it to him and he 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 kind of blows it off. It is it is quite fancy for him, but also he he blows it off. Um, and uh, yeah, so 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 that is is known to be a, around um, and, and it crops up in other places. We're going to move into the George is an awful portion Awful person portion of this podcast. <laughs> um, because it comes quick, it comes quick. <laughs> um, as we've already mentioned, he repeatedly tells her that she is not, uh, attractive to him. Um, and, uh, but, but then, uh, beat by beat, both of the props we have mentioned are, uh, Attacked by George, or um, or uh, used to his advantage, um, he he comes uh, back home and is, is he's trying to find a job in New York, quote unquote, trying to find a job in New York, um, and it's admittedly hard. Um, uh, he 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 tells stories, and I think I think they're true stories about how he's in line with a bunch of other people trying to get a job, and what he thought was qualification enough that he built the Panama Canal with people and knew how to run machinery and had been on cruise before is not qualification enough in Manhattan.
1: Although we also get from Esther this this narrative that runs alongside of George's narrative, which is that there's plenty of work. George just doesn't want to do the kind of work that's available. Right. If he was willing to go work for the butcher or if he was going to go work as a bellhop or things like that, maybe more uh, jobs in the service industry. That they exist all around. But George says, no, I want to build things with my hands. I didn't come here to just haul around white people's bags. Right, or shine shoes. Yeah, I, I came here to make something of myself, to build big buildings, eventually one day to run my own company. And so he then lays out this opportunity that is potentially available. He says he knows somebody, like, from a bar, that is selling 12 strong horses. Yeah. Apparently they're bankrupt or nearly so, so they're going to sell the barn and 12 horses super cheap, which George says or sees as this opportunity for him to do something, to, to own a business, own these horses that he can sell to construction companies to make them money and 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 become self-sustaining. The problem is they don't really have money for the horses Except that they do, right. knowing what we know about that first big prop.
0: Yeah, so so and and it's it's like um, it's <laughs> a, a war of attrition almost that he fights with her. He like he like asks for two dollars for a hat, and then brings up this business idea, and then later on she gets him a suit, a, a nice like wool suit, so that he can be out and work in the winter. And uh, he brings it up again, and is just kind of continuously going after this this thing, I mean, this, this blanket that is always there in the room with them whenever they're having a scene that is full of money. And so he just chips away at her resolve to keep it for what her dreams are and says that he will use it for a dream of his that will fulfill their dreams together.
1: Meanwhile, an absolutely heartbreaking use of props occurs. Uh, Esther goes to visit her dear friend Mamie at the at the house where Mamie works, it's like a casino, and yeah, it's yeah. a bar casino and and some prostitutes also work there. And so Esther's visiting her. They visit her several times. But while she's there, Mamie says, "Oh, I met this awesome guy. Uh, he He was a client, but he wanted to stay and talk afterwards. We drank. I really liked him. He's, he comes back three times a week. he He's so great. Um, and look at this amazing thing
0: he gave me. And
1: what she pulls out is.
0: Well, that's the smoking jacket. It's the, the
1: smoke. Uh, it's just it. It hurts. Yeah. And I remember seeing it and I and I just hurt mm-hmm. when, when the reveal comes of the smoking jacket.
0: Yeah. And Esther doesn't tell her that it's that it's hers at first. Like you see that you see the the whole scene ends and, you know, Esther knows Um and but but she doesn't let on to Mamie, or at least well, maybe she may, Mamie doesn't pick up on it. Maybe is the the better way to describe it. And then so so yeah, so it is very very clear that George has been there. He has been with Mamie. He has uh, been at the casino using the money that she gave him for drinks and and being there. Um, and then uh, the the big scene happens where she ends up actually giving him the money that he says he needs for the draft horses. Well,
1: it, it comes immediately after the scene with Mamie and in kind of another heartbreaking hurting scene Esther goes home And she finds George. She's made George this nice suit, as you mentioned. And George is about to go out again. And Esther says, no, don't go out. Look, I have a present for you. And she has George close his eyes. And George thinks he's going to get the money. But what Esther reveals is a a piece of lingerie that is exactly what Mamie would wear at at the place where she works as a prostitute. It's in that style. And she puts on lipstick, which George has always said, you might look okay if you put on lipstick. Right, right. (laughs) Yes, but she does it, and so he opens his eyes, and she's wearing this piece of lingerie, and she's got a rose in her hair. She's got this lipstick on. It's it just oh, it hurts to see her try so hard and do something that she uh, we know, knowing her, she feels is degrading. Yeah, we know that she feels it's degrading to do this, but she wants her husband to be interested in her, and so she does it, and
0: he still he still is an ass <laughs> <laughs> that was so unexpected but so perfect yeah um yeah i know he 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 doesn't he's he's not interested and he still uh harps on about the uh the money in the comforter and um Or in the quilt. And uh, so she gives it to him.
1: And he uses a very specific tactic, too. The tactic that finally wins over the quilt is equally gross Yeah, he he describes how if he gets the money for these horses he's going to have his own business and then he and her will be a respectable couple they'll go to dinners one of the things that's happened at least in the first part of act 2 is that Esther's always trying to get him to go to dinner to really be her husband in a public way yeah. to do the things that she's imagined doing when they're in a couple and George is not interested in any of that but he describes how if he uses the money to get these horses he'll, they'll be able to do all that the people will know know them they'll walk around town together and he says and i'll sleep with you right and she says only me and he doesn't answer and then she well yeah gives them the money
0: yeah and there's this moment of like the the stage directions say that she's almost like relieved to give him the money at that point like it's Like this is this has gone on for a while. We get we get a little bit of uh, uh, a time uh, timeline to this. There, it's been a couple months um, that they've been in a relationship, and she we get that from a conversation she has with Mrs. Van Buren that she's a little behind on some of her orders. Um, So just I mean, just imagine this kind of conversation happening often for months, and 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 finally in this moment she she gives him the money, knowing that he's unhappy.
1: Uh, one of the things that she knows regularly and George describes regularly is he just doesn't really like New York. He kind of misses Panama where he had work and respect and where the sun was always shining. New York is gray and dreary. People don't respect him. And he's unhappy. He's unhappy in their marriage, clearly. Mm -hmm. Um, He feels like she's deceived him by describing herself as prettier than she actually is. (laughs) Gross. Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, and, And so she gives him the money and it's... Oh, man, it's another one of those heartbreaking moments of prop use mm-hmm. to tear open the quilt, the quilt that has been her dream of this place. And it's not just a dream where she could have success. It's the kind of dream it is where she can make other African-American people feel human, feel respected. It's such an honorable, beautiful, forward dream, something she's clung to, something she's saved year after year for, and she gives it all away away to this man that she hopes will then be her husband in a very real sense, and he doesn't.
0: Yeah. He doesn't even just, he doesn't even try to pursue the dream that he says he has.
1: <laughs> he With takes it. the money, goes to the whorehouse where uh Mamie works, and gambles all the money away.
0: Yep. All the money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which yeah, so we get we get a scene after that where she has gone to Mamie, who is expecting this person again, um, she still doesn't know that it's George and that George is is married to Esther. She she didn't come to the wedding a, a bit of build-up before. She never saw them married. Um, she didn't go to church because yeah, she— never
1: met George, obviously not knowing. And, and you're right, right. They do set that up pretty well in the first act, why Mamie wouldn't go to the wedding. They build in the stuff about her being uncomfortable in churches and such.
0: Yeah, yep. So— the scene the scene after esther has given George the money. She goes to the casino where Mamie works, and 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 manages to tell her that the 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 coat is hers. the the yeah. the 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 smoking jacket that she gave to George that now Mamie has is, is Esther's. And uh, and 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 Mamie is is distraught at that point, right? Like right away. There's there's no like slow build up. It's one line. Once once Esther reveals it, Mamie is is. Uh, is is mortified that this has happened.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and. In what ends up being kind of the climactic moment of the play, if there's a real climax, it's it's a very memorable moment in any case. George is pounding on Mamie's door. Mamie, let me in. Mamie, are you there? Mamie, Mamie. And Esther and Mamie are clinging to each other in the room. And Esther is saying over and over, he's not real. He's not real. He's not going to take care of you. He's a fake. He's a fraud. He's not real. Let him go. You have to let him go. He's not real. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it's it, it's this moment where these two friends just have to cling to each other instead of this thing that has sapped so much of their energy and, and literally all of Esther's life savings.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, yeah, this person and, and it's and it's pounding on the door like it is it is not not wanting to leave either. Um, we we got two other big things I feel like we got to talk about And only 10 minutes to do it um we haven't we haven't talked at all about Mr marks and esther's relationship yet
1: oh my goodness it's <laughs> it's it might be the feature of the play for me <laughs> yeah. what a brilliant amazing part of the story so as you've mentioned Jackson Mr marks is esther's fabric salesman or material salesman but they have a, a very special kind of relationship don't they
0: yeah, yeah. Um there there is certainly some sort of uh chemistry between them. Um as as uh, and 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 sometimes it's it's it it varies between you know uh you know romantic chemistry and other times it's just like friend stuff. Like Mr. Marks is excited to show her this new fabric that he has. And some of it is sales pitchy, but really quickly in the rela- in our in the scenes that we see them with in, it's like I've been saving this from other people like <laughs> I could have sold this five days ago and I didn't show it to the person because because I think you'll really like this. <laughs> um, and so so there's this 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 um, relationship building between them. They've known each other for a long time, but there's a roadblock in, in, in their uh, trying to move on some of these feelings that I think they both share for each other.
1: Right. We learn pretty early on that Mr. Marx, being an Orthodox Jew, is technically engaged or at the very least committed to a woman he's never met that his parents picked for him when he was very young. And so he is not really available. None of this is ever spoken. We we learn that he's engaged or committed via spoken, but it's never spoken that that means they can't really be together. Mm -hmm. Uh, Much of their relationship exists in subtext and sort of internal moments. One of the most special moments is when uh, uh, Mr. Marx has put this piece of fabric around his neck that they've been admiring and he kind of turns and the stage direction is that Esther reaches out and touches the back of his neck where the fabric is. And that's a big deal because being an Orthodox Jew, Mr. Marx cannot touch a woman who is not his wife. And so early in the play, Esther grabs his hand in excitement over a, a piece of fabric and he pulls away and she says, well, don't worry. The color's not going to rub off on you. And he mm-hmm. says, no, 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 That's not it. It's just my religion. I can't touch a woman. Uh, and so they establish that. So then later on, when Esther reaches out to touch the back of his neck with this fabric, it becomes a very important, powerful, uh, surreal moment.
0: Yeah. Which is accompanied by one of my favorite stage directions in the play, which is uh, Mr. Marks doesn't feel her touch him. Or does he? Or, or something density. along those yeah, lines, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and so through the course of the play, this sort of potential amazing connection that they have grows and wanes as she's married, um, and there is, I think, one of the the features of those scenes that is so memorable and life giving is the way they talk about fabric.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They have this this shared love of Of fabric and material and and how how it plays and what it's used for, like they they get to talk shop together. when they're not being awkward around uh, trying to figure out what their their emotions are with each other. they like slip into this this vernacular of, well this is this is really nice, but it's not quite worth the money. I think I can go with this a little bit lower or uh, this type of wool is going to be the best kind. and here's this lovely story from the Scottish person that I bought it from. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's this really kind of sweet trading back and forth of of uh, their trade together.
1: and Lynn Nottage, of course, is setting up Mr. Marks to be everything that George isn't. right. And it's not like the play ends with the two of them getting married after she leaves George or anything. But she sets up two very different men, the only two men in the play. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Um. As, as diametrically opposed. Let's right. think, Jackson, about some of the ways in which they're very different, right? One of them, the most obvious way probably, is that George is a stranger who she marries, not having met him. Whereas right. Mr. March is a longtime friend, clearly who they have an established relationship that she doesn't end up marrying.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and, and one of them, maybe maybe subtextually, is is that uh Mr. Marks definitely is attracted to her. <laughs> um, and uh George is, as we mentioned, a jerk. And uh and is is uh, repeatedly tells her that he is not.
1: Right. Another instance in which they're kind of opposed is that George and Esther don't really seem to have anything in common. They come from very different worlds, they speak very different. Not languages and they don't speak English, both of them, but uh, a language of the world yeah. in terms of how they describe the things around them, the things that they've experienced. It's very different. Whereas Mr. Marx and Esther are on the same wavelength. They imagine fabric and they imagine the world of fabric in a very, very
0: uh, aligned way. Mm-hmm and and he's so uh as opposed to George who kind of crash lands into this area uh Marx is in- integrated into the community. Um he knows the people she knows, he knows what she does and and it's they've they've had, you know, an established relationship over the years versus a quick flash uh flash letter relationship.
1: Right. And of course Mr. Marx is Kind and warm and treats Esther with respect and just in terms of the kind of person he is with other people. You know, for a while she doesn't go because she's so busy preparing for the wedding. And when she finally shows up again, Mr. Marks is like, "I, you know, if I had known your address, I would have gone to check up on you. I, I was so worried yeah. that something had happened to you and you could never imagine George doing anything like that.
0: Right, right, yeah. Yeah. So, so absolutely uh, opposites. Um, And, and, and that, 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 uh, that dichotomy ends up paying off with the realization from Esther that her love, this is after she has been married to George, she confesses that her love is somewhere else. Like she, she notices that she has feelings for Mr. Marks and says, "I can't. Sorry, I can't buy anything from you anymore. I can't. We, we can't keep doing this." And um, and she leaves, and then confesses, I think, to Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Van Buren that she has feelings for Mr. Marks.
1: Right. And the payoff ultimately comes in the use of another prop. Uh, Lynn Nottage is just an absolute expert at infusing moments with these layers of significance so that everybody understands exactly what each gesture means, even when there's no textual conversation about it. So she's infused something like this smoking jacket with yep. such power that when Esther gives it to Mr. Marks after Mamie has returned it, remember that uh, George Esther made it for George, her husband, George gave it away to Mamie who he thought was just some prostitute. Esther is friends with Mamie so she collects the smoking jacket from Mamie and she ends up giving it to Mr. Marks at the end of the play. Mm-hmm. And there's such significance in that small moment Moment that Nottage has managed to layer for us. The, the, the moment that I mentioned before where she places her hand on uh Mr. Mark's neck. That's another moment where there's there's no text to say, this is what that meant when I did it. Mm-hmm. But there is so much significance layered around it and built to it that the moment is crystal clear.
0: Yeah. I, I, I agree that 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 payoff at the end is just like Right on, right, right what we needed. Oh, we got, we got a couple more minutes and we kind of talk about is that, we we good, we good with Mr. Marks?
1: We are good with Mr. Marks, I think, because we have to talk about the pictures.
0: Absolutely. And the theatricality of this play, the acknowledgement of form. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah. So the stage is set uh, on a pretty, uh, uh, empty-ish space. There's there's props and stuff, but you move fluidly from place to place all on the same scene. There's not, like, huge stage changes. And in the,
1: actually, in the production that I saw, it was a very fully built set um, but each each place that Esther goes was imagined in its own part of the stage and Esther just moved fluidly in and amongst all the different locations where all of the characters live characters don't really go to different places Esther goes to them the scenes with Miss Dixon are all in the boarding house the scene with Miss man Buren are all in her closet the scenes with Mr marks are all in his shop the scenes with Mamie are all in hi- in uh, in her in her house um, George is another character that moves a little more fluidly, but pretty much all the scenes between them are played in their bedroom.
0: Yes. Yep. So so you're moving back and forth between different scenes and stuff. You're moving into different light areas on stage. Uh the, the ending, so so leading up to the pictures that we've teased so far, the ending of act one is really the only the the, the the script anyway calls for it to be the only real blackout in the play, um, barring, you know, curtain. Um and, and that moment is set up by all of the characters kind of saying something in various spotlights around the stage. And then George and Esther ending, I imagine, centerish stage in two different pools of light. Dressed for a wedding. Dressed for a wedding, yep. And uh, what happens is uh, a picture is taken. You can decide how you want to do that as a production team. Um, and then projected is the picture.
1: And an old, it's an old, you know, you'd make it look like an old timey sepia photograph and the caption you're supposed to project or display somehow. It's so interesting. It's only done one other time in the play, but this is what the caption would say. Unidentified Negro couple circa
0: 1905. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, so, so, so why? (laughs)
1: Why indeed? Well, let's set up the second one too and we can talk about them together because the same thing happens at the end of act two, i.e. the end of the play. This Mm -hmm. is after Esther has left George. She has given the smoking jacket to Mr. Marks. She has moved back to the boarding house with Miss Dixon and she is alone in her room uh, about to start sewing a new quilt for herself start a new life restart her dreams moving forward yeah she's alone the p- the picture is taken and then the uh projection uh, the projected caption is unidentified negro seamstress circa
0: 1905 yep mm-hmm. so both of those end the acts there there are they are our retinal image at the end of the play so
1: why? Yeah. Indeed. What is that about? It's so cool. What an what an amazing imagining. What does it add to the play, Jackson? For the for those capstone scenes
0: for you, what did it add to the experience to hear about it? Hmm. Um. I think it does. It what it did for me anyway was uh like the news uh the news uh clippings from P- A Sweat by Lynn Nottage. It sets us into the reality of the situation. As we've said before, this, I mean, this is an excellent play. It is—it is it is well-balanced. The reveals are awesome. There are themes in it that are like, okay, I've heard this before. Awful guy writes letters and tricks someone into, into being in relationship with them. What this does is it sets it into a time that we uh, don't identify. And, and the pictures point to it and say, remember how we don't identify these people? These, these people who are unidentified, unidentified, uh, yeah, the, the, the caption unidentified Negro seamstress circa 1905 blackout. We've all read a history book that has that caption. And
1: yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think that there's something in it about this you know, the story is so sweeping and beautiful and heartbreaking and captivating. These lives are so rich. You're so amazed by what the characters go through, the strength that they have, the things that they say to each other, the, the betrayals that they make of each other. And you you say, this isn't a, what a story. Everybody should know a story like this. And then the pictures come and it makes you for a moment go, everybody does. Mm hmm. Right. This is just another person. This isn't a famous queen or a president. This right. isn't somebody who your history books are going to tell you about. This is just another person living her life in New York or anywhere. And she has, as part of her life, this incredibly enriching story. And for me, there was some sort of reflection on this sense that if I took a picture of any unidentified person and then I wrote a play about their life, there might be this similarly captivating, incredible story.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it challenges your uh, your passive uh, perception of people, um, and 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 makes you think about the fact that uh, the assumptions that you maybe make um, as you kind of gaze over uh, a picture of someone is is the reality is so much deeper than your, than your surface level perception of it.
1: Right. And it's it, it's handled so subtly that it, it's, it has an incredible impact. Because instead of right. doing this six, seven, eight, nine times during the play, uh, the, this picture thing, and beating you over the head with it, it does it twice. Once at the end of the first act, when you've really lived a whole story. These acts are almost their own stories mm-hmm. connected by this tenuous thread, or, or at the very least, the first act is a journey of, am I going to marry this guy I'm just writing letters to? The second act is what happens when I do yeah and so there's clearly a connection but they are all but they're their own journeys too so when you reach the end of one part of the journey you get this picture and you go oh Mm
0: -hmm. this is
1: just maybe she just imagined the story from this old picture of these wedded married couple yeah and then by the time you get to the end of the play you've almost forgotten that that happened right and it comes again and it strikes you again the gong sort of hits again
0: yeah, yeah, and and and, and resonates uh, between the two acts. I, I agree with that, yeah. I think that is our conversation on Lynn Nottage's play Intimate We had Apparel. to continue
1: the tradition of we Jackson making me stop talking about the play <laughs> at the end of our time. <laughs> Didn't we? Going into season three, that doesn't seem like it's going to change. It's not
0: going to change, no. <laughs> try to keep it around the one hour, but there is always more to talk about in the plays we do because I mean we're weird flex, but okay, we do awesome plays. Um and, well, yeah, uh, I mean we we talk about awesome plays. Right, we're, right. we're we're only we're not, flexing our
1: ability not. to pick plays.
0: Our our ability to <laughs> wax philosophical about other people's <laughs> awesome work. Um Uh. (laughs) And this play is no exception. This was a fantastic play. So excited. But there is more to talk about. So if you have uh, read this play, been in this play, interacted with this play in any way, seen it somewhere, we would love to continue this conversation with you. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, The username is at noscriptpodcast. And then our email is noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. Hit us up on any of those platforms, and we would love to keep talking about this play with you. Absolutely.
1: If you've liked this episode or any of the other episodes from our two seasons of work or the season coming up, please share it on your social media. Tell people about it. We're blessed upon blessed by the listenership that we have, and we're excited to keep growing. So please share. Tell your friends about it. Uh, please go over to patreon.com slash podcast and support the show there. You can find our podcast. You can find all the episodes on Podbean where we're hosted, on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, spotify every monday a link to the new episode is posted on facebook twitter and instagram
0: yeah and so until next week when we're coming at you again with another play i'm jackson Nikolai. i'm jacob man christensen thanks for listening to another episode of no script the
1: podcast we will see you next monday for c or episode two of season three yeah bye woohoo